Hey, what's up, everybody? Um, man. The world is just getting crazier every damn day, isn't it? I am really excited about this podcast. Um, Asia Black from The Reminders is our guest today. Uh, her husband Samir was on previously. Um, she is about to blow your mind. I don't even want to fuck around and try to give this woman an intro. Um, I've met a lot of amazing people in my day, and she may be the most intelligent, well-spoken, articulate, sensible person that I've ever met. Like, if she was a video game character, she, uh, all of those attributes I just named would be at full mass, like cheat code levels. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna shut up, man. We're gonna get into it. Uh, enjoy. Please share this one with your friends. This one is important. Uh, yeah, enjoy. Peace. Asia Black, welcome to the Satsung Podcast. How are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you doing? Good. I'm super excited to have you on. Yeah, um, I'm excited too. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, honored. Um, so a little bit uh, of how we met. I have done countless panels at countless festivals. Um, I'm always on the like say yes to everything tip. Um, yeah. If I'm going to be somewhere, it's just like I might as well maximize my time there. Mm-hmm. Um, and me and Samir were on a panel together, and then you came into the panel, um, and it blew me away listening to you talk. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was really really special to hear you talk, and then we got to um, catch up a little bit later um, in the festival and and kind of shoot the shit again. Um, and I'm just I have a, uh, a deep respect for what for what you and Samir do, not just as artists, but um, as activists as, and parents. And there's an energy that you guys bring that is very, uh, very educated, but also very calm. It's not a very emotional, screamy. Right. right? And we're in right. such a, I feel like we're in such a time right now where that is the energy. Um, yeah, Samir and I were just kind of talking about that. I think our voices have matured over time and we realize we don't have to yell to be heard, you know? And um, I think that was a tremendous part of our growth process and just our, it was an, a, an act of taking our power back because I don't want to be so emotionally incendiary that people can get me riled up in any way at any time, right? Because it compromises my ability to communicate effectively. And I don't want to forget what I have to say because I'm so caught up in proving to you that I'm right or proving that you're wrong, right? Because then my message gets compromised. So I think a lot of our, I mean, there was definitely a time when I was, you know, I'm from Hollis Queen, so <laughs> there's definitely, it's definitely in me, but I think I recognize now if I'm going to be loud and ridiculous, usually it's because I'm having a good time and not because I'm trying to assert myself in a space, you know, because if it gets to that point, nobody can really hear you anyway. Yeah, I would say honestly, uh, that it is my that is my absolute biggest struggle. Whether it's like uh, you know with a teenage kid, or um, I actually just deleted my personal Facebook today because I found myself just kind of adding up the amount of time that I was like trying to explain things to people. And the the internet culture right now is not about teaching each other anything. It's um, you know, people are, are disrespectful and short. And I just started noticing like, man, I do not have the emotional maturity to handle this platform at this time. 
Yeah, I mean, with Facebook, we it, I think it's because people like you and I make the mistake that people are looking for conversation, but they're just looking for validation. They're not looking to be spoken to about, you know, a conflicting idea. They only want people that are going to advocate for what they're saying. There's no, there's no dislike button. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? There's only a like button. So people aren't searching for contrary opinion. They're just searching to be validated in their opinion, you know? So it's like I heard an analogy the other day that said, Facebook is basically a room with four walls where on every screen, it's exactly what you want to see, mm. you know? And so we're kind of shouting from the outside of that room. That's not true. If you just like looked it up, <laughs> if you studied history in any context whatsoever, you'd see that opinion is invalid and they can't hear us because they're too busy watching what's on those screens. That's basically four mirrors, you know, just reflecting back everything you want to see and everything you want to hear. And I've wasted a tremendous amount of time on Facebook too, because the interesting thing about Facebook is, it's people you know and you interact with, and then you see these super strange, it's almost a break from the character that they've presented to you. Mm-hmm. So you almost feel the need to like rescue them from whatever temporary madness that they're obviously suffering. You know what I mean, you're like, oh, I've met you, I know you, you wouldn't say this. You don't, that's, is that yeah. right? You know, so it's almost a rescue mission more than us trying to have, it's like, let me, wait a minute, this is not, how could I, we have, our relationship have like passed all these intimate points if you feel this way i would have never it's like facebook has no gatekeeper so you open the door and people come in and then you're like how the hell did you get in my house yeah 100 percent. it's an interesting thing too right now because one thing that i really see um um on the left is people that agree on 99 percent of things but they find the weird nuances of the one percent thing that they don't right. agree on and yeah. eat each other not just i disagree with you but this like cancel culture of if you said this it means this and here's your new label and fuck you and this is your new reality right. in my eyes and i'm like you know so I, I i i got a lot of questions today of people like you know why are you uh deleting facebook and i just i've just had so many interactions where exact exactly what you're saying where i'm just like man if i was standing in front of you you just wouldn't talk to me that way. If anyone was standing in front of you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't talk And that you way. wouldn't say these things publicly. Like, it's like a, a, a public platform where there's not really any accountability because what's interesting to me is that when those type of interactions happen on Facebook, when the people see each other in person, they don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird, they isn't don't, it? It's like it never happened, and it weirds me out every time because maybe it's because the era that I'm from, but it's like, there's accountability for what you say or what you type. You know what I mean? So if I see you on the street and we didn't finish that Facebook conversation, I'm going to bring that conversation to you. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I think people, it, that makes people, the weird thing about being a black woman is I'm reading a book right now. It's a sociological study about black and white styles of conflict. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example of something. Volume for black people is not indicative of an issue or a controversy or a conflict. Volume for black people is no indicator of something's about to go on. You can see a bunch of black people sitting on a stoop and they'll hear people yelling down the street and turn their head and look at it and not be alarmed by it, right? And so I was starting to learn that proximity for black people is what indicates something's about to jump off, but it's still not a fight until some hands get thrown. Our faces, you might've seen black dudes before that will touch their faces to each other and their noses and twist around in a circle and it's still not a fight. To us, it's still not a fight, right? But in this sociological study, 
you know, it says that for uh, it, w culturally with white people, once the volume goes up and it seems angsty or it seems like people are in conflict, that qualifies as a fight to them. Right. And so a lot of times I start seeing these cultural miscommunications where I have a conversation with somebody on Facebook and I'm a person that I use my words. Very, I, I'm familiar with words and I use words to construct things and not destroy things. When I was younger, I used them a lot to destroy things, but now I use them to construct things. So sometimes just the way that I approach, I'm an energetic person. I realize that people think that it's very, I'm trying to bring a conflict, like the volume or the way that my hands are moving or the fact that I'm closing the proximity or, so I'll be like, yo, what's up with that stuff we were talking about online? Let's, you know, and they're like, huh, 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 huh. you know what I mean? But I'm really like, no, I'm saying like, we need to continue that conversation in person because I need you to look me in the eye and say what you said. And I need to look you in the eye and say what I said. And we got to make sure we're still capable of representing those truths when we are accountable for them. You know, and that has, you know, like you said, I've thought I've gone off, off and on to Facebook so many times, mostly because I'm trying to rationalize um, how people have these avatars that are so bold and brave and politically charged and, and have all these opinions. And then when I see you in person, all you have for me is small talk. And I'm not a person that's very good with small talk. It's just, I used to have the skill, Drew, but like once... I learned big words. I didn't make small talk anymore, mm. you know? So it's kind of like now that I know how to communicate and I know how to express what it is and translate my ideas and always look to kind of create a tangible line between two, me and somebody else. I always look of, for ways to include them in things. You know, once I had big things to talk about, I didn't make small talk anymore. And um, so I found myself after this quarantine, all of a sudden being hella socially awkward. Mm. Cause I don't yeah. have, what'd you do during your quarantine? I'm like, watch the destruction of the American government through the eyes of the youth. They're all, yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the vibe right now. Right. Is that it's like, you just don't know where the line is with people. Cause it's like, it isn't an elephant in the room. It's 37 elephants in the room. And it's like, you know, so are we going to sit here and, you know, and but talk you know, about the Drew, 37. 37 elephants in a room is a circus or a zoo. No. You know what I mean? So it kind of, it kind of is, it is what it looks like. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And so it's, like, it's a matter of us, you know, deciding what the attractions are going to be. This is what we're going to focus on right now. And this is what you're going to focus on. And for me, I've, I, I was at an age before where I was like super involved in uh, activism through protest. Mm -hmm. And now what I recognize is that I've gained a skill set that, allows me to practice activism from a different vantage point. Mm -hmm. And I'm really embracing that because I realize I have a, the ability to create access for people whose voices need to be heard. And I have the ability to give, to make myself invisible in exchange for giving somebody else visibility. And I think people ask me what I thought about what's happening right now. And I said, these kids are pissed. Like these kids are pissed that they still have to have these conversations when they found new ways to include one another. You know what I mean? When I was younger, I was in high school. If you were gay or you were nerdy or you were a white person that had black characteristics, they call you wigger. And if you were a black person that had white characteristics culturally, they called you uncle Tom. Like there was no escaping being characterized in a way that was not accurate. 
And now, and everyone excluded you. They found ways to exclude you from things, whether, oh, you talk like a white person, you're excluded from blackness. Oh, you listen to rap, so you're excluded from whiteness. Oh, everybody was finding reasons to exclude each other. And what I noticed with, you know, my children is they're constantly finding ways to include people. My daughter is constantly thinking about if she's having something with her friends, she goes to a really small school, she invites every girl in the class, because why not? Why would you not invite everyone? Like, why would you not? And their mentality is like that. Like, why would you not be down with everybody? Like, the, the, the crazy thing with my children is that where they're at, everybody's cool. You know what I mean? All the kids, like, where my kids, the place they're at, they're like, mom, everybody has something of value. You know, and so when we continue to have these systems perpetuated by, by people that they're unfamiliar with in places that they don't understand, from perspectives that they didn't grow up in, they're fucking pissed off. You know what I mean? And they're showing it. And especially white kids are out there showing it because in speaking to my one, one of my friends recently, a lot of people, the black perspective, and I guess the white perspective too on racism is that it was inherited, right? You, it's a, and so I started looking at, at, at racism as if it was a psychosis, convincing your children they have a disease that they don't have, right? And that they don't have a choice in being racist because that's just the way the world is. And these people are dangerous and these people do that. You're convincing, it's a neurosis. You're convincing your children of a false reality to perpetuate a state of mind that is not relevant to what they're experiencing, right? So you, you, we're all under this perspective that racism is a hereditary thing passed down through race and culture. And it's 100% not. And I think these kids are waking up and saying, you told us we were sick this whole time and we were healthy. You know what I mean? You, you made us think that this whole, you set up the world to perpetuate the sickness you convinced us we had, you know, and that's, it just is not the truth. You know, and now I'm looking at you like a lot of, you know, Caucasian kids I'm seeing are having these conversations with their parents where they're pissed off. You know, like you, this is not a hereditary condition. It's a psychosis. You have decided that some human beings are less worthy than life of life than others. And you're a liar. You're a liar. And you put these systems in place and you manipulated our education and you let the daughters of the Confederacy teach what, what decide what we were going to be learning in schools. And you gave us an education that was catered to us having a sense of greater esteem than other people. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that. So yeah. I, one thing that I'm seeing a lot of, oh, damn, you're really fun to listen to. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so I was just talking with my... Um, with my sister-in-law who's a teacher and has been for almost 15 years. And this whole thing has really opened her eyes and her heart to this whole thing. And she's just kind of learning more and more every, every week, you know, and Samir and I've been talking about that even before he was on the podcast of like, at first I was kind of like, fuck man, welcome to the conversation. Like we, I've been trying to talk to you guys about this shit for a minute. <laughs> we yeah. all had that feeling yeah, like, yeah. hello. Yeah. But you know, I, um, there's a lot of people with this openness to learn right now. And they're really, you know, like last week I told um, my, my sister-in-law texted me and she said, how come I never heard about Juneteenth? I'm a teacher. And I yeah. said, and I said, I said, yeah, this is where the systemic comes in. When we talk about systemic racism, I said, Google black wall street. And she had never heard of that either. So it, I watched these light bulbs just going off of just like, Oh, this is what they Yeah, meant. because in, man, Drew, in these books, they don't teach us that Black people 
are afflicted, right? They yeah. teach us that we are the affliction. You know what I'm saying? Like, they don't teach us that we were mistreated. They treat us that we're a source of mistreatment. It's very strange. I was not educated that way. And Black children, Black history is almost oral tradition at this point. Because from the time you're very young, your parents let you know that there are going to be these situations in the world that are predicated by a history that will not be taught. Right? And so we go out into the world and we have to constantly, being an American is having the complex of mixed kids, right? It's constantly having a culture that belongs, being in between a culture that belongs to you and the culture of your parents. It's constantly being in between being part of a community and being part of a political system. Like we're constantly, being an American is a very complex identity. And we have very complex identity issues because we're all here together with a system that perpetuates segregation racially and culturally, right? How are we supposed to share space and understanding to one another when the daughters of the Confederacy get to say, after they rebelled against the Union, after they were traitors to the United States in a war where thousands and thousands of lives were lost, they get to come back and say, well, you basically can't tell people what we did was bad. Right. And they're like, so when you t fix the history books, you need to say my my friend put it to me like this. She through the process of her education, what she believed to be true was that black people were happy during slavery. And the reason that black communities are afflicted the way they are right now is because they made the voluntary decision to end slavery. This is in 2020. I'm having this conversation. Right? This is a woman who was educated for 16 years. By the time I talk to her and I start giving her historical evidence, because if you don't know your history, you don't know shit. Yep. If you don't look up history, you know nothing. Right? And so you could literally disprove so many arguments with one historical fact. Right? And so I'm telling her about Emmett Till. I'm telling her about how at lynchings, they used to give people's fingers, the lynching victims' fingers to kids as souvenirs. Right? I'm telling her about all of that. And it's so inhumane and so atrocious and so vile. She turns to me and says, there's no way that could be true. This happened in your parents' lifetime. Do you understand that? Your parents were alive when these things were happening. And she says, there's no way I could, that could be true. And then she tells me, Drew, I went to, to school for 12 years and then I went to college for six years, right? And I never heard any of this. So I must be making it up. And people think that Black people have this false narrative of victimhood that we made up because we were bored and we were so sad to not be slaves anymore. You know what I mean? That we made up this whole history for ourselves to feel like victims. And they always put this victim mentality on us. You want to live off the government. You want to always say racism. You want to pull the race card. As a matter of education, you were never taught about the things that were done to us that show a seriously compromised humanity and a tremendous moral ineptitude because they wanted to protect you, so they sacrificed us, which has always been the narrative here. Yeah, it's you something that, that as you know, that I can definitely say as a white dude, that is a it's an interesting thing, man, because I have such a deep this is my this is my constant internal conflict is you know i went to school for u.s history and it's just i just always have loved history i don't know why i you know i fucking hated math i hated science i've just always loved because 
it comes back to that same thing. If you know where you've been, you'll have a better idea of, of which direction you should go. So I've always just been really into it. And it's, and it's hard because I love this country. I, I weep for her. I, I love her so much, but there is this other side that is like when you learn the real history of the United States and how it came to be and this, this, this idea of, of Thanksgiving and then boom, slavery just ended and then everything was great. And when you get into the, the nooks and crannies of the actual history of this country, like you're saying, it isn't just, it is morally bankrupt and it is disgusting and it is appalling and it is, it's sad. Right. And it's like, I don't want, I don't want, first of all, I think that a lot of people should start identifying culturally before they do racially, right? Mm. Because there's no way that there can be six categorizations of people in the United States and we choose one of those and that's it. Yes. You know what I mean? So it's like, what is, you need to know history because you have a cultural heritage that dictates a subset of values that were taught to you from generation to generation. And when something upsets you, it's probably compromising a cultural value that you've never put a name to. You know what I mean? So it's like, well, I'm white and I shouldn't feel this way. Yeah, but your family's from the Ukraine and Ukrainians are master storytellers, right? So you look into your history, Irish people are master storytellers, people from the Congo and Uganda and Kenya, your, your history is so important. And when you come to the United States, they say, when you become white, you no longer have a cultural history in context of being American. And that's damaging for a human being, yep. damaging. Right when you take a huge plethora of variety, and we have this cultural context to communicate to, where I say, you know what matters the most to me, Drew? Family and safety and fun and adventure. And in my culture, that matters. If those things matter in your culture too, it makes sense that we would become friends, right? But it also would make sense if family is a high value for you and you were miseducated about me as a black woman and you feel like I'm a threat to your family, we can have a conversation. You understand it's a conversation about values and what threatens our values. But if you're just an ignorant racist afflicted with the psychosis of racism because you were Italian or Jewish or German, and when they needed you to align with them politically, they said, and we'll also let you be white. Yes. Yeah. It's, right? it's, so if you align with us politically and vote the way we ask you to vote, we will let you call yourself white. And hmm. white people are the best people. Right. And then it's it's then what started happening was that started happening with more and more and more immigrant classes. Even people that are Arab get told to check white on their standardized tests. Right. And so it's like it started happening with more and more and more and more Im immigrant groups in America. And they told each of these immigrant groups that got to be classified as white. And you can look down on black people. At least you're not them. Mm. We're the only people who our political alignment has never led to any American benefit for us. It never made us feel like we were becoming part of something that was part of the American dream, right? It always felt like a carrot that's dangled in front of your face, but they just keep backing up. You know, and when it comes to, you know, the history of politics in this country, Black people are considered a monolith. And we're argued over like we're, we have divorcing parents and we all have one brain and one mind and one eye. That's why I can't stand when people disqualify people's blackness based on the things that they do because it, it, it is, your blackness is your existential reality. You'll always be black, regardless of what you think or do or say, you'll always be black. That's something that won't change. When you express a different opinion, how are you automatically placed in a different racial category as if your cultural context didn't matter? 
people are always surprised when there's black people that vote Republican, but you're not surprised that there's a tremendous amount of Baptist churches that are very anti-abortion mm-hmm. and even or, or anti-gay or anti-gay. Yep. Like, why wouldn't, why would you think that like, how come with the democratic party after a while, what they started to say, and we have blacks and we have gays and we have people that love abortion as if they were synonymous. Yeah. You know, and that to me, like, still constantly in the political conversation, we're thought of as a monolith. And I just tell people like you, my value of history is so great. And the reason you love history so much, Drew, is because you really know the value of a good story. Mm. You know what I mean? And so when the story is something that you can see reflected in your environment, if I told you that there was once upon a time, this giant race of people and something happened and they were made very tiny and they were blessed with these big, beautiful wings, and those are, that's how dragonflies came to be. If you were a child, every time you saw a dragonfly, it would bring you some kind of joy. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's how history is, right? His, historical stories are like these dragonflies to me. Like every time I see one in the context of my life, it brings me depth of meaning. And with history books, that's what it is for me. When I see something, when I see an Irish person that tells me about their Americanness, and I say, do you know there was a time where you were the second most hated group of people in America? Did you yep. know that there was a time where you were so disgusting to them in your Catholicism and your Irishness and your drunkenness and your bruteness, you know, that they, w- they didn't want, even though your skin was white, they said that you were the furthest thing from whiteness? And a yes. lot of Irish people don't know that. No, and it's and that's that's actually I'm I'm Irish, and it's a really interesting part of the story. Of um, I remember having a conversation with a fellow that was telling me that he said, you know, it's very likely that your last name uh, isn't actually McManus, that it was very very common that uh, that perhaps your last name was O'Manus, and then on the way over here they're like, listen, y'all, we're McManus because we could pass his, <laughs> we could pass as Scottish if we play our cards right, you know. Um, and what's interesting, yeah. you know, is I always, you know, Fred Hampton is 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 probably it's. Oh, I, I, I love Fred Hampton. He's my he's my hero, and um, you know, the thing that I found most interesting about his story, particularly the end of his story, is 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 I feel like where the books that were you know, where he is mentioned in history. It starts at the uh, the Bobby Seal trial in Chicago, and then he was murdered by the police. And if you go about a week before he was murdered by the police, he held a, a meeting on the south side of Chicago where he had um, these different kind of ambassadors from, like you're saying. So he had, uh, you know, kind of an ambassador for the Irish community, one for the Polish community. And he essentially broke down economic inequality and said, listen, man, we can do what the Panthers are doing in our neighborhood, we can show you how to do this in yours. You can set up your own healthcare, your own legal advisors, your own breakfast programs. We can show you how to do this. And that was when the cops decided, that was when the state decided. Same with Malcolm X. 100%. You went to Hodge and you're cool with everyone now. (laughs) Exactly. That undermines our narrative that makes people hate you. So we can't have that. And you know, the thing about Fred Hampton that's beautiful is Fred Hampton was a very black man from a very black community that stood in his blackness and advocated for equality and justice for every marginalized community. And that's very dangerous. We're both history buffs. Let's go back to the populist party. After the populist party started saying, yo, we're going to make our own party and it's interracial and it's integrated because y'all we're poor and y'all are doing us all dirty. What came after the populist party? The black codes. Now you can't gather. Right. You can't all be in the same space. 
Black people are no segregation, right? Because the Populist Party was a threat to both Democrat and Republican parties because it was an interracial party of people that were impoverished when 80% of the America was impoverished and they were gaining a tremendous amount of political traction, right? Which is what hap what's happening right now. It's so scary to people because you see mostly white kids out here, like mm -hmm. F this, like we're wilding out. You know what I mean? I, I hope some of, you know, the white kids that are in the nighttime, like feeling super angry and destroying things, you know what I mean? See that that reflects badly on the entire community. But at the same time, I under their, their anger is, this is, it's like Toni Morrison said, right? She's talked about racism being an affliction that is connected to whiteness. And she said, now it's time for white people to look at each other and say, there's a psychosis of racism. What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do? How are we going to detach ourselves from whiteness and become citizens of this country? Right? And to me, I told, I told somebody the other day, you know, everybody, they have the slogan, make America great. They're talking about the commercial entity. They're not talking about the people. Mm -hmm. Or it would say, make Americans great. You could add three letters and change the entire message, but they 100%. wouldn't do that because it's not about us. It's about them and their corporate entities and their greed. It's about America as a corporation maintaining a position in the world, right? It's not about the people. So I always said, what about the people? Because if you had a shirt that, that said, make Americans great, people like, why don't we appropriate the flag for what we decided America means now? Mm -hmm. Right, y'all made it mean this. We're going to take that symbol and we're going to change it. And now, what America means is we're not standing for this bullshit no more that y'all are doing to try to segregate and separate and harm people. And we need to have more conversations about our rights. And we want to be educated properly. And I told Samir, I need to get together with some history people, and we need to write a book that's called "The Factual History of Us." Mm an inclusive tale of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Our history, right? As an entire people, not a white history that everybody infringed upon. You know, because that's just not accurate. It's just not true. When the Ken Burns country documentary came out, so many people were shocked to see black people were a part of it at the beginning. And, and what they should have been shocked about is that when they decided to market this music to white people, they decided to change all the black names and all the black faces so that white people would accept it more readily. Now, how, why would they have had to do that if there was no racism in the United States? Why would they have had to remove black people from things? Why wouldn't they just invite black bands to perform instead of doing minstrel shows? Mm. Why wouldn't, if, the, if this racism is so made up and so false, right? And it's, it's trauma when we're born, our baptism is generational trauma. It's like, oh, look, here's little baby Drew. And then you get an assigned identity. Mm -hmm. You are white, you're a boy, you're Irish. Here's your assigned identity. And then you go around other people and now you have a given identity, right? Where it's like, uh, you are, you like, you're, you're cool, cool, you're this, you're that, people give you. And then when you start to evolve as a human being, you have a chosen identity. And that's the identity we trying to we spend our lives trying to convince people of. Regardless of how you see me, I'm trying to tell you who I am. Right? I was given these identities. I was assigned an identity. I was offered an identity. But I have an identity that I have chosen for myself. And that's what I'm trying to show you. And that's what I'm trying to speak to you. And that's what I'm trying to sing to you. 
You know what I mean? Is I'm trying to tell you who I actually am outside the confines of the bullshit. I'm actually a person who has likes and desires and none of them have to do with a lot of things that you're assigning to me. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, it was very important. And excuse me if I'm rambling. Just Oh, no, off. please keep going. <laughs> when I was younger, um, words have always been very important to my mother. And being able to articulate ourselves was very important to my mother. And it's something I, a tactic I do with my kids too. But my mother taught us so many names for feelings. So that when we were upset, we could communicate how we felt. Right. My mom, we used to read, but like everyone in my family is like a super reader. We check out 15 books from the library at one time. Right. Because we know the power of words, you know, and, and I think it's so important to be able to translate your identity and articulate it, you know, and I think a lot of people get lost in the translation. When I went to school, I spoke very well because of this with my mother. And that was alienating to a lot of people. And they would tell me, you talk like a white person or you do this like a white person. And at a very young age, I started seeing all the things that I'm proud of that I was taught by my black mother. When I go into these environments, they're ascribed to white people. And I asked my mom, why is that true? Why is that true? You know, and my mom was breaking down to me how black people, throughout history were taught so much self-loathing and to advocate so readily for, for European beauty standards and things like that. And my mom taught me that reading and writing used to put your life on the line. So we pretended to be dumb for a very long time. And some people forgot that we were pretending. And that always really stuck out to me that my mom said that. And I had to stand in my selfness, my my Asianness, with a complex of a mixed child, right? Because my dad's always, and I mean culturally mixed, you know, racially mixed in my family. I have to go live overseas with my dad and everybody say, you're American. That was my assigned identity. You're an American and that's why you do this, 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 and this. And that's why you're like this, 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 and this. I'm from New York. In New York, I come from Hollis, Queens. I'm a Jamaican or a Puerto Rican or this in my community, right? And then I'm that. That's my assigned identity. Mm -hmm. I moved back to the United States. I moved to Colorado. And I'm black. You're black. That's why you do this, this, this. And what makes you not like a black person is the fact that you're educated and you talk like this. And white people would tell me, yeah, you're black, but you're not black, black. And people still say that now, right? And it let me know, again, the power of words, Drew. The fact that you're saying, I am an exception to your rules about blackness, I don't want to be that. Because you, you don't know anything about black people, right? But- and when you make, yeah, when you make people the exception like that, it's like if I said, yeah, you're Irish, but you're not a drunk. Mm-hmm. What is that? Like, but you're Irish, but you're not Irish Irish. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What does yes. that mean? Like I'm Irish. You can identify as Irish, Drew, but you're not really Irish because you're not an alcoholic. They're the demeaning phrase that you're the exception to for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think when you know the power of language, you see implied meaning and you recognize it, but you don't always know what to do about it. 
Well, do you think? And I'm sure you have the same experience. Yeah, hundred percent. Somebody might be like, "Why do you love Malcolm X so much? You're a white dude." It's like, how could you not love Malcolm X? How could any human being look at Malcolm X and not love him and be attached to his story? Yeah, it's it's in well. So the thing that's interesting about that too is I always, and maybe this is just because of the music that I felt so attached to growing up, you know, the first stuff that I really fell in love with was, you know, uh, was Marvin Gaye and, um, you know, all, all the like 60s, 70s folk singers too. But uh, when I found hip hop, I was blessed um, that I found it through skateboarding. So I w- it was all underground hip hop. It wasn't Uh, the shit that was on the radio. So what I found is, you know, being a white kid that grew up around black kids and then being going to a school that was 98% white, their perception of uh, hip hop was Ja Rule, um, you know, Puff Daddy. Sir Mix-a-Lot. Exactly. And and my interpretation of hip hop was uh, Most Deaf, Talib Kweli, The People Under the Stairs, where I was, I, I just, I associated intellectualism with hip hop music because I just always thought in my head to be able to put words together that way, especially the way that, that Talib and, and Moses, when I first heard Moses' record, I, it, it blew me away. That was why I began reading these books because I wanted to know what he was talking about. And, and, and when, you know, and when you start, and and same thing. I was I was I was told that I was stupid for wanting to know things. You know, like what a waste of time that you would be digging into these books. You're not black. Why would you? Why do you? Why do you care right. about the Black Panthers? Why do you want to read Huey P. Newton's books? You're not black. This has nothing to do with you. Right. And I just I just had to. I just always had. I've always had this under this deep desire to understand, and and to be able to speak from a place of education and not from a place of of just like, well, this is my, like, we, like we're talking about with Facebook, you know, the order of the day is, well, this is my opinion and fuck your facts. I don't need a book to know that this is the truth. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so the, I've just always been, you know, to make it full circle, I guess I just have always kind of thought the powers that be have designed this thing to be exactly how it is. You know, like I look at my sons, my 16 year old son, his generation, the face of black music to them is, Lil Uzi, uh, fuck, I don't even know, you know. But you know, even in that, even in that, we're talking about identities again, right? Like their primary characteristic right now, Drew, is that they're young. 100, yep. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that's their primary characteristic. Everything that they do is through the lens of youth right now. You know what I mean? And that's, we have to remember that because when I was young, it was the same thing. The world felt so big and I knew exactly what was perfect about it. And I knew exactly what mattered in it. And I knew like, to me, what makes sense is if you look at Irish culture in general, the fact that you loved hip hop music makes sense because Irish people have values of storytelling and redemption, Mm -hmm. right? Against all odds. Right, tremendous odds placed against Irish people. They were an, an undesirable people in the United Kingdom, right? The spat upon, the joked about, the you have red Irish hair, the you know, redheaded stepchild, the the all the things, right? Why, as a person culturally who identifies as Irish, even the issues between black and Irish people, Andrew Jackson perpetuated those issues when he told Irish people, 
You want to be white? You want to be white? Vote for me, because I'm an Irishman, right? Mm-hmm. Vote for me, and you can have every black person's land deed. That felt like redemption for them, right? Like, wait, all we have to do is go take these land deeds from now black Now we're on people. the team. Now we're, we're white now. Yep. You know what I mean? Finally, our redemption story. You know what I mean? So as an Irish person, you're very familiar with the theme of redemption, the, very, the, the themes of struggle, the themes of overcoming things at all odds, the value of family. Like all of those things are your cultural context, right? And in America, those are the values that were advocated for and passed down through your bloodline. You're not immune to that, right? So when you look at Black people in this country, when I think about when Trayvon Martin was, was killed, when I think about when Emmett Till was killed, I'm, there's so many children I'm thinking at, about right now. Um, gosh, I'm getting a little bit emotional. Um, but what upsets me is that why weren't there more mothers who were upset? You are a mother. Mm-hmm. A mother. How does this not upset you when somebody could snatch your child from your life unjustifiably? Does that not scare you to death that somebody could do that? And does that not, as a black mother, what scares me is the fact that they could do it to my child because he's black with no consequence. Or no cause. I couldn't even think of yourself as a parent, right? Somebody kills your child and everybody says it's okay. And they, not only do they say it's okay, but they say your feelings about the people who killed your child are not justified. That's my child. Mm-hmm. You understand? And it's like, when we talk about identities, I'm sick of the bullshit with the racial identity being primary identity. My cultural identity matters to me. My identity in my family, my identity in my community. And when I see a child get killed, I don't give a damn what color that child is, as a mother, I'm upset. You understand? If something happens, if your house was on fire and you're my neighbor, you don't think I would go and I would think about, I don't know, he's Irish. Right. You're my neighbor. What can we do? Because that was one of the things when I first heard you spoke that really stuck with me is you kept saying that of like, you said, when we were on that panel, you said, uh, I appreciate you guys inviting me up on the panel, but I don't feel 100% pertinent that I be here because I feel culturally represented by the people that are on the panel. And I that, and then we furthered that conversation. How can we, as people, because I mean, dude, we have people that can see pictures of small children in cages at the border and disassociate from it. But and- look at the strength. This is the thing to me. It's such a matter of education. Right, our education is messed up. Yes. And I had the privilege of being educated in Europe. And when I got back to the United States, I was like, what the hell? Why are you so far behind? What can we do? Why are you having so, why are you allowing this? Why are you treating these teachers like this? Why do y'all act like teachers don't matter? Why are you giving them this curriculum that they don't even believe in? Yeah. And mandating that they teach it. You know who is the best educated? How old are your parents? 61 and 64. So, 1960, 1964? 
Yep. But my parents are coming, our parents are growing up in the age of Brown versus the Board of Education, right? Education, yeah. Daughters of the Confederation, here's what we want to teach, blah, blah, blah. In Texas, they just stopped teaching that daughter of the Daughters of the Confederacy curriculum last year. Jesus. Right? So our parents, think of our parents, Brown versus Board of Education. Our parents are an integrated society of students, right? They mm -hmm. are one of the most well-educated groups of children in the United States of America, and you get kids that protest Vietnam. You get kids that protest segregation. You get kids that protest against racism. You get kids in college at Kent State fighting against the, uh, the armed guards because they said, you cannot send us to war anymore, right? It was one of the most well-educated, right, groups of children in the United States history. They were educated about themselves and about one another, right? Because the curriculum was kind of still in limbo, right? So all these communities are coming together and the only way you could really learn because it wasn't represented in the history books was to interact. And a lot of the time, when people say these general statements like, well, black people this, well, white people that, well, this and that, well, Spanish people that, you're not interacting with enough people that fit under that label for you to have a qualified opinion. So what you're talking about, your opinion is unqualified. And this is where, this is where so Facebook said, fires I, start. Exactly. Why are we, I'm not going to spend my time validating unqualified opinions with responses. I need to save my breath because I have a lot of important things to say. And this is a long journey and I have a long way to go. So my breath is sacred, mm. right? Your Amen. opinion is not qualified. You're not interacting with enough of the people that you're talking about to have a human, humane, qualified opinion. So what's interesting with that is is to to revisit the you know the left eating the left. There was a there was a post. There's there's a few recently in the past couple of weeks that led to my decision to terminate my account, and and one of which was um, a white kid here in um, in in Billings had shared an article essentially denouncing Killer Mike, saying it was the article. The basis of the article was Killer Mike doesn't really have the right to say that people shouldn't burn their city down. Like that's not on him to say. And I was just like, look, man, dude, I have a friend that owns a sneaker store in Minneapolis that helped organize the protest and then had a sneaker store looted. Like that sucks. And then after he cleaned it up, he went back out and protested again the next day. And I can tell you, he's pretty bummed about his sneaker store. And then I also have friends that are active Black Lives Matter organizers that are like, no, it sucks because what we're trying to do here is like, make huge global public awareness of this wound that exists and any negative attention we bring to it is reaffirming these stories that these people already believe. Right. You know, and, and I was told that I was, that my white fragility was showing and my privilege was showing. And I was like, no, I actually like, it, it, as cliche that's as it is, I actually talk to black people because I have black people hominem. that are close to me. It's ad, hominem. it's ad hominem and it's meant to distract you from making a point. It's yeah. just like I said, when we were talking earlier, I'm not going to get emotionally worked up so you can distract me from making a valid point by you saying ad hominem things and attacking me personally and attacking my character and attacking my white fragility. The minute it's dangerous to ask questions, everybody should be concerned. Everybody, right? Because asking questions is the only thing that increases knowledge and understanding, right? It's the only thing that can connect you in a conversation is to ask a question knowing that there's a possibility you'll get a response, right? And so to me, the dialogue 
as soon as it becomes an ad hominem conversation, my point is no longer going to be accepted readily. And then it has to be an argument first, right? So what I do when I get into those situations, because when it came time for people to put the black square on their Facebook, on their Instagram, and I, in the morning I woke up and I put that black square on and then I took it off. And I said, you know what? I have a question about this. I don't understand the movement. I don't understand how it's supposed to go. But at a time when the only accurate information we're getting is through visibility, why would we black out social media? When the only accurate information and somebody told me I was being divisive in a way that reflected anti-blackness. And I said, I'm going to tell you something. Number one, number one, before I do anything, anything, I purify my intention so that I can take action that I feel qualified to explain, that I can take the, 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 the consequence for and the reward because I purified my intention. I know why I did it, exactly. And I'm never gonna attribute it. Oh, I, 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 I didn't know everybody else was kind. Just, it, it, every, I wanted to stand in solidarity. So I said, I wanna stand in solidarity, but my opinion, right, is that there's no reason to make ourselves invisible at a time when visibility matters most. And when the girl was upset with me, I said, number one, sister, again, I always purify my intention so I can defend my action. Number two, I am not going to argue with you because I love you. And if I argue with you, everything that I'm doing and saying and everything you're doing and saying is to the contrary. It's just a conversation we need to have. And if I don't communicate misunderstanding, if I go out and do something wild and attribute it to, to your cause, how's that gonna make you feel? Mm -hmm. Right, and I told her, and it's this phrase I've been saying all week, don't come for me, come to me, yes. right? Don't call me out, call me up, please. Mm because maybe there's something I don't understand, but your job in this movement is not to make enemies out of people. Your job in this movement is to make yourself available for the very important conversations that need to be had. And if somebody is attacking you, you delay it. That's a conversation that needs to be had that somebody's not in a place to have right now. And you have to respect that too, right? So somebody like you, I've heard you talk, I've heard you advocate for things. Unfortunately, you know, in America, your race is your assigned identity. And it's monolithic. And you are acting out of your race right now. We don't care about these kinds of things. How many black people, how many white people you think would agree with that? Why are you so concerned with this? Black people, why are you so care about? Like, as if we cannot subscribe to these monolithic racial identities anymore because they compromise us as human beings and devalue our cultural context completely. Race is not indicative of a value system. Race is not indicative of a, of a story that has to do with your family and your history. Race is not indicative of a community that you live in or a, a, race is not indicative of, of an economic reality for you. There's poor white people Lots that get them. beat up all the time. I watched this dude in Florida. I watched the police beat his ass mm -hmm. because they could. Yep. Because he had nobody around to say anything. Yeah, and you'll see a public defender tomorrow. Yeah. Right. And they beat his ass, punched him in the face, beat his ass, locked him up too tight with the handcuffs. We're doing this maneuver. I don't know what it was, but it looked like they're about to dislocate his shoulder because they were pulling down on his arms when his arms were handcuffed. 
and put him in the back of the car and take him to jail. And is to your, me, I'm thinking the only reason they got away with that is because this man is poor. Yep, 100%. And how do we, what can we do to, because I'm guilty of it, like you've heard me say like three three times, you know, I especially in the times that we're in, I feel like that's the thing is that everyone's prefacing, well, well, as a white guy, I can only say this, you know, as a, you know, so how can yeah. we, how can we reinforce the identifying factors of ourselves being our value system, how we culturally identify? You got, everybody got to try to learn their story in the context of their family, in the context of their culture, mm-hmm. right? Because the minute you say, my name is Drew McManus, there's a possibility my name wasn't always McManus because we had to pretend to be Scottish instead of Irish because Irish people are that undesirable in this, this community. And here's the story of us. And that means me and my family and my people. Here's the story of us. And here's the little points of contrast where that story gets, you see a substantial change in the way that we're sticking together or thinking or when, when one generation rebelled against a generation that was older, when we were institutionally brought into racism, or when we, were, did we, we chose whiteness over our cultural context. Because if you think about it, number one, when people are looting and people are like, why are you burn? Why are you stealing? Why are you burning stuff down? Is that not a capitalist uh, uh, ideal? There's Wall an Street. opportunity. Look at Wall Street, man. There's That's what they do. There's an opportunity to get something. Isn't it the event individual over the group? Isn't yep. it the individual over the community? Shouldn't I get mine however I could get mine? How is yep. looting not the most capitalistic thing you can do? Yeah. I see an opportunity. I'm going to take advantage of it to put myself in a better position. That's yep. not capitalism? Yeah, to a T. That's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's so when people are looting, what do you mean? Why are you doing this? We're taught to do stuff like this and to take advantage of people and to think of ourselves over the group from a very young age. Yeah, every man for himself. We're taught to be with our classmates. We're not taught to help them. Yep. We have ranking systems in school. Who's better than who? Yep. Oh, what college did you go to, Drew? Rank number one. Oh, you went to community college? Rank number 3,000, right? How is it not about me getting to where I want to go ahead of everybody else, right? To me, that's the problem is that you teach people to take advantage of other people and to, and to ostracize people and to make it seem like money matters over everything. And you wonder why the first thing people do in lawlessness is take advantage, mm. right? Why is the first thing they do take advantage? You know why what Malcolm X started doing and what Martin Luther King started doing and what people are doing when people are, what Colin Kaepernick was doing, he was not taking advantage of anyone. He went down on his knee. He didn't burn a store. He didn't burn a flag. He didn't, all he did was take a knee. And people treated that just like they're treating looting. What's Mm -hmm. the difference? If the response is the same, how does the action even matter? You know what I mean? So it's like kneeling on a knee and, and doing it on your own and not taking advantage of anyone just to raise a broader message. Everyone said that was anti American. And to me, the reason it was anti-American is because it didn't take advantage of anyone or exploit anything. Well, it didn't look like, it didn't look like, you know, the narrative is that to go against the stream of, uh, of the modern American narrative is a forceful, aggressive, bold action. 
and he he did it in such a beautiful way that that i i mean it's you know it's one of those things that will forever be uh, a baffling part of our culture is it's like if this yeah, isn't how you like protest their house no, yeah. they acted like he came to their house and burned their house to the ground and pissed on the American flag. Yeah. Here's the thing. I was given a sign and identity of being an American when my father was in the service. I had three generations of my family serving the United States military. My grandfather told me that when they used to get rations, they just got what was left over after the white people got their rations. My grandfather told me when it was time for barracks, people had tents and they had nothing. Like my grandfather started telling me, how much was taken from him because of his blackness in this country. And it was never enough to make my grandfather defect. So when you talk about, I wanna take what it means to be American back to be inclusive of the real story. And when I see an American flag, I don't know if what people wanna do with it. I don't wanna assume that that person is a racist. I don't want them to own Americanness like that. Yeah, right. And we have a lot of issues. And that flag represents a lot of things in a lot of different places. And it, it has been a symbol of oppression in a lot of places. It has been a symbol of pride in some places. It, it means so many things. And I think the conversation is us deciding collectively what it's going to mean from here on out. What do we want people to think when they see that? What do we want people to feel? You know, politically, uh, we've done a lot of things in the world. Right. But I remember when that was my primary identity. I remember when it was my grandfather's primary identity, when he was fighting in wars, my dad's primary identity. And how we defended that. You know what I mean? And then I remember when I came to the United States and it was Colorado and I would put my hand over my heart. I'm a, I was a division one athlete before we would play every game. And those moments meant something to me. I was excited about the game. It felt like a powerful moment. And then I remember people telling me, this flag does not belong to you. This is our flag. When we hate black people, we put, I was in Florida. Why, why aren't we American? Two, why does that flag mean, if somebody has that flag hanging outside of their door, it means racism. It means oppression. It means, why, does, why would that ever mean that here for me? For me, why do I look at the American flag and feel the same way as, as somebody in another country that's been criminalized and oppressed by America, right? And how can I still love this country at the same time? This is the dynamic to bring it full circle. I'm talking about having the complex of mixed kids. It's being something and not being something at the same time and navigating the complexity of that. Being Irish and not being Irish. Right, being black and and standing firm and asserting my blackness, and then going into some spaces where people don't consider me black. It's being and not being at the very same time, and that's very difficult place to be. And to be an American, that's what it means. Right now, there's so much confusion. Not to mention the coronavirus has added to the emotion and yeah. the energy of things. And some people, let's be honest, people aren't monolithic. Everybody out there is not caring about civil rights and advocating against police brutality. Some people are just out there to be outside. Yeah, yeah. People are forgetting to talk about that. There's a beautiful social justice moving going movement going on, and the majority of people are outside for that, but not everyone. Not everyone. And people need to admit that. I've been you struggling know, with people here are out there is, for different reasons. 
is that there is, and I know everyone just kind of shows up how they can show up, but something I've been struggling with, you know, I live in this little ski town on purpose, you know, I grew up in Des Moines and, and lived in Chicago for a long time. And, you know, I live here on purpose. And, um, you know, some of the people here uh, every Sunday, you know, they wear all black and they walk five blocks to the park. Um, and for me, it just doesn't, I haven't participated because I'm like, I've been focusing my effort on raising funds because I believe that a lot of these issues are economic disparity issues and that there are people that are better qualified than myself uh, to be the tip of the spear, if you will. So it's like, those are the people that I want to help. There's these signs of solidarity, but just again, like this thing that I keep coming back to and explaining to people is yes, the Aunt Jemima thing is out fucking dated and needed to be changed. Yes, these statues should not be up. And most of these fucking statues were put up in the 20s and 30s, not immediately after the Civil War. But these are all surface level things. I remember Malcolm X said, you know, the American dream that we're living in right now is black people have a knife sticking out of their back that's six inches deep. And America isn't even offering to pull the knife out. They're denying that it exists. So how can we heal a wound when the knife is still there? So it's yeah. like these surface level things are nice, but how I see that is throwing a coat over the knife. We're not pulling the knife out and changing these. Yeah, systemic I agree. I think it's, I think it's, you know, somebody's outside starving to death and you give them a gift wrap box and inside is a toy. I don't need toys. I need food. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't need toys. Like, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's nice. But what am I going to eat? You get, why would you give me a toy when you know I'm starving? Right? So I always equate it to this. I said, no, why are people so angry? Imagine that people, you're, you know, I'm a person that metaphor is very magical to me. Same. Because it gives depth of understanding and it gives a visual image and it immediately creates an emotional connection. So you're yeah. a musician too. You know what metaphor yeah. means. I can say, I can talk about something else and you know exactly what I mean about something else. And what's magic with the metaphor is I can specifically pick something that I know you understand to make you right. understand my point. Right. That's what and I love then, about you know, it. They say that metaphor is the language of God, right? Because it's the divine language because God equates all things to one another and you can turn a book into a guitar. It's like yeah. being a magician. Right. right. And it means they say metaphor is the magic, the, the language of God, the language of divinity to be able to speak of because any prophet or, or Buddha or they, they spoke in metaphor because metaphor specifically implies to everyone and no one at the same time to yeah. everything and nothing. You know, and so the metaphor that I have is you imagine there's a house and you can see through the window and outside it's freezing cold and you're starving to death. And you see everybody gorging themselves and throwing food on the floor and wasting and doing all kinds of stuff. So at first you stand outside and they, they look through the window and they see you. So you wait outside for them to invite you in and they don't. So then you knock on the door and you ask to be let in and they don't. So then you kick down the door because you're hungry and they push you back outside. Eventually you burn the house down and your hunger is satiated by the ashes. See what I'm saying? Like sometimes the presence of a thing is such a reminder of the lack of something that these kids right now, they're saying in order for us to be fed, in order for us to feel like we have access to things, the house has to go completely. And we have to build something new where that house was that's bigger and has more space for everyone. 
You know what I mean? And I think that's kind of where we're all at right now. But Drew, what's important to me, and this is not always a popular opinion, I'm a person, and I only speak for myself because that's the only person I feel qualified to to uh, defend against anything, or, you know, and uh, qualified to speak for. I um, I was always very attracted to people that were different from me. And I don't mean romantically or sexually attracted. I mean, I'm addicted to stories and meaning. And I've been trying to have as many conversations as I can with people about things because I honestly think a lack of history and a lack of education and a lack of understanding and a lack of interaction, we're all missing so many things. You know, our hearts are like puzzles missing the corners. You know what I mean? And it's like, how can I, how can I find ways to connect myself to people who don't, who aren't like me, who don't agree with me? How can I stand in my blackness and at the same time have conversations with people about blackness that aren't black or about culture that, you know, it's like, like I said, we have, we are all in an intercultural relationship with each other right now, you know, and it's kind of like we have to learn and grow and know. And I, I notice a lot of things. I always wondered on that panel that you talked about, and forgive me for being long-winded. Um, no, keep, yeah, you're good. I'm looking forward to talking to you. And I know we have an understanding of one another and an understanding of history and understanding of music being a language that your story just seems to float along into people's ears and they readily accept it. Um, there are conversations that need to be had. And when, when I was saying on that panel, you have to be very specific about the kind of diversity you're talking about because they were going to have a panel on diversity and it was everybody was white. Yeah. <laughs> and they, and, and, but it leads to a bigger implication, right? How come you didn't have any diversity to choose from at the festival? I was one of the first people you thought of because I was one of the only people that represented anything different racially, right? Racially. Yeah. What about as far as having children? Do you have any mothers up there? Do you have any, what, do you, what kind of diversity are you talking about? Because I am not going to qualify this conversation with my presence if you're not even sure what diversity you're talking about, right? So I don't want to be used as a prop for anything. I don't want people to say I'm very woke and then say, I spent a whole day with black people. You know what right. I mean? As if that was a mercy to us. Yeah. You know I mean, but what I do want somebody to do, and which is what Amber Lily did, Amber Lily said, how are you going to have a pen on diversity and invite me and all these other white people? I want you to give my spot to Asia. Right? And I was in my head so much about it at that time that the bigger problem for me was, how are there all these beautiful world music artists in the world and you don't have them represented at this festival? Where are they? I know 10 bands I can invite right now that would impress everyone with their ability and their goodness and their message. I know 10. I could call them on the phone right now. But you guys aren't doing that. So by the time you guys were up there, I'm looking at everyone. Culturally, I felt very represented. Samir was up there. Rising Appalachia was up there. You know what I mean? You were up there. Culturally, as far as music being my culture, I felt very represented. Racially, I was represented by my husband. As a woman, I was represented by Leia Song and Amber Lily, right? As a black woman, there wasn't any representation. That would have been me providing that representation, talking about my experiences as a black woman when it seemed the context that was the least likely to be understood on that panel. 
you know, it would have turned it into something else. I did feel very represented by everybody that was on that panel, but I did take issue with the fact that you don't have very many people to choose from. Yeah, that's a big, that's a big struggle in the festival community because it's, you have on one hand, um, again, these kind of half-assed attempts uh, to seem like you're saying to seem woke, you know, it's like, okay, what can we do to have the newest age, newest age shit here? And, um, you know, we're going to have this panel on social justice. I think they're trying to the best of their abilities. And then there's this other side that's like, I have to sell tickets to make sure I make money on my festival. So I have to have these people that I know will sell tickets. And, you know, someone that I've recently seen come under fire for some other shit uh, that's always done an amazing job is uh, Jojo and and Wookie Foot at Harmony Park. And I know y'all were supposed to be out there this year. Jojo exclusively will go and go, okay, who is a cool, dope, black female artist that I haven't heard of? He'll spend a week sending me shit. What do you think of this? What do you think of this? Like he goes, okay, here's my three bands that are going to sell all of our tickets. And now what amazing shit can I bring to everyone that they've never had before? Um, you know, and, and even, even on the, the LBQTQ side of things, he always is just like, from the most genuine place ever wants to have that not be a conversation at his festivals. And he's figured out how to use the monetary hierarchy of like, okay, these guys are going to sell a shitload of tickets. These guys are just going to sell a shitload of tickets. Now, what can I put in between here to help lift these other voices up? Well, it's like we talked about when, to me, it was, I watched the Marleys open up for some kind of like sublimey type of kind of like punk (laughs) reggae band. And to me, it was such like a subversion. Like those are the Marleys. You know what I mean? And they're the first of four. Yeah. Or watching Steel Pulse open up for for a Cali. Yeah, but you know, there's always been this narrative. And I love Steel Pulse. I was raised on That's my fave. That's my favorite reggae band. Oh, God. I I, I sang Your House. So that was one of the first songs I ever sang, like with a band. Mm. I want to live in your house. want to live in your house. But there's this conversation of, and I'm just going to say it like it is. People like to see white people do things that black artists do it always is received on a wider scale. So it's like, you think of like Big Mama Thornton and Janis Joplin imitating her and people loving the, invita- the imitation more than the actual thing. You know, and as black artists, that's something that we've navigated, navigated for a long time. You know, because wokeness to me is not knowing different people or black people or brown people. And it's not loving uh, black people or brown people. It's including them. Right, and a lot of artists that have been in this space have, even you look at bands like Revolution, they try to take Zion I and people like, let me include you, but there's also this perception that that comes where it's like, oh, you want him there to validate what it is you're doing? Like, it's a larger conversation, you know what I mean? And I think it's, for black artists, we're just trying to navigate spaces that we're consistently left out of where the imitation is applauded. What is that? I got to ask, I got to ask, what is that specifically on the reggae thing? Because that's something that, you know, there are, I feel like there's different levels to it. Like you said, there is the, you know, the kind of subgenre that was created in California, which is this weird mix of punk with elements of reggae, 
Um, that's what I think. And that's it is. its I own think- thing. But 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 I'm I mean on the subject of white reggae bands with fake Jamaican accents and the whole nine. I just it's so it's so uh, it's so again the complexities of things. Yeah. Because uh, I watch these artists with straight up shatas that I know, know advocating for these artists. And then I watch other artists that are like, nah, you know what I mean? But I think, like you said, it's a subgenre. But if I go to a reggae festival, that's not what I'm expecting to see across the entire bill. But a white person that loves that kind of music calls it reggae. Yeah. But to me, the reggae to me that I was, I brought up on again, still Pulse, Burning Spear, uh, uh, Sizzla, like all these different things. The message of the music is what makes it reggae. And the people that are making it come from very specific situations that I can identify with. And what makes it reggae is to me them saying, despite this situation that I was brought into and this hood that I grew up in, I found goodness and I commit myself to that goodness in the face of all other things. I try to evolve and I try to grow and I try to, 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 to be good to my community, one love, one world, one there's Amen. no way that I can advocate for that message of reggae and say white people are not allowed to sing reggae. Sure. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I think that type of reggae should be, it should have a name. I agree. That's, that's what I've long said is, uh, you know, especially, like I said, you know, where it gets tricky because at Harmony Park last year, there's a couple bands in question of this where I don't have an issue with, I mean, look it all music comes from black music. I would not have a career if it were not for my influence of uh, blues, hip hop, soul music. I would not write the shit that I do if it was not for black music. That's just point blank period. And I feel like that's any modern artist, that's just what it is. Everything comes from black music. But where it gets tricky for me, and and like I said, there was like a all out backstage debate at the festival last year was, you know, yeah, when, when white bands are using the fake Patois accent and, you know, singing the Rastafari stuff where it's like, man, I mean, this is actually somebody's religion. And I always equate it to this thing of like, if I was Chinese and I came into uh, a music festival and there was a band up there going ching chong wang dang, like fully mocking, yeah. you know what I mean? I would, I would, cause yeah, that's how I look up. at it. And I'm just like, man, that would be extreme. But it's crazy to me because it's like, I love Sting so much, and I loved the police. My dad used to play the police all the time, but Sting literally had an album called Regatta de Blanc. Literally, the album's called White Reggae. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's like, (laughs) but then I start looking at it. I have a friend called Mike Love. Uh, I love Mike. And that dude's music brings me to, like, watching that dude in his space, in his music, and his message, like, that shit is reggae. Yeah, 100%. That's, he's, a, he's a different creature. I'm a, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at this brother like, he understands this music. But Rastas hate when anybody does the fake Patois accent. They yeah. hate that. Jamaicans in general are like, really? Yeah. Because they're, they're, they've, they've been sampled by people. Like, oh, the Rastas come smoke weed. Most people don't know that smoke weed is illegal in Jamaica. Right? Like, oh, we're going to do the big Jamaican with the big roster lips smoking the blunt with the, and have these little, you know, I've seen people that go to reggae shows with those things on the front of their car. 
I'm like, yeah. yo, this is hella racist. It's yeah. a Jamaican Sambo. Yep. And they're like, no, I got it when I went to Jamaica. That's what, have you seen other Jamaicans? Like, is this how you characterize Jamaicans? Because my grandmother's a Jamaican and I should go straight for your head about that. You know what I mean? It's like, you really, it's not just the music and the culture, it's the people. You understand? Like, to get an understanding of something, you have to get to know the people. Like, the people, like, the places where this comes from. And I have this, I'm an I'm ethnomusicologist, right? So mm-hmm. I'm constantly looking. This same thing happened with rock and roll. The Im- imitation was j- found a greater audience and greater appreciation than, you know, the beginning. But I also remember having a conversation about Bob Marley with one of the elders, and he said, when we used to go to Bob Marley concerts, Almost everybody was white. Yeah, that's isn't that that's a really interesting phenomenon. And Bob Marley used to get frustrated. Yeah, he was singing about black liberation. The people I'm trying to talk to. Yeah, the people I'm trying to talk to don't come to watch me. They don't come to hear me. You know what I mean? And then now Bob Marley's everywhere, right? But he only got his roses afterward. And so it's just God. Like I struggle with this all the time. Because there's people that I know and love that are incredible musicians that make this kind of music. And I remember liking Sublime and mm. I remember liking Still Pulse at the same time. And then somebody saying, you can't like Sublime because there are white dudes that do reggae. And I, it's, it's a hard conversation for me because it, no matter what I say, it causes me to compromise my position and people that I love. Yeah, well, it's no, tricky, you know. I say, it's totally okay. White reggae is totally, that's what you do. But if I say it's totally not okay, like I'm, when it comes to that music, just, man, oh man, Drew, that one. I, um. What about hip hop? Because it's interesting. I had G-Love, I recorded a podcast with G-Love yesterday. And, and you know, he was, I don't know if you're familiar with G-Love and the special sauce, but he uh, is, uh a white kid from Philly. And he was like, it was so funny because I remember when Samir and I were talking, we both were like Eric B and Rakim. That was like our first shit that we learned front to back, you know? And G Love said the same thing, but he was like, bro, but I grew up playing basketball in Philly and it was just known. Like if you were a white guy, you didn't rap. There was no, there was no pass on that one. Immediately disqualified. (laughs) Immediately. No one's passing the ball to you. Nobody's sitting in your barber chair if you're the white guy in a black neighborhood. None of that. So he was just like, you know, I just knew that it was a no-go. And then eventually when I kind of, you know, when, when the band formed, he was writing these songs and he just kind of figured out how to add this little hip hop blues flavor. And it came out with one of the most original bands uh, of all time, but he was hated for it, you know, and he was so not, not only was he not trying to do it a disservice, but he was actually from, I know. He's it's, from the hood. You know what I mean? I, there's a lot of things I have an answer for, but the jury's still out for me on that. Yeah. About how uh, it makes me feel because I um I don't feel slighted by it. Like people don't love me because they love this. I just kind of feel like whatever systems perpetuate this shit, it's messed up. Yeah. You know what I mean, like it's messed up that when you're white and you do something it's easier for you to find an audience than when you're black and you do something. And it's hard, again, that complex of mixed kids culturally, you grow up with this being the dominant uh, music and because you have to check a racial box, you're either allowed to participate or not allowed to participate. You know, it's it's something that kind of goes back and forth. And I think America's conceptions of 
race and culture and, and are so messed up. They intentionally did things to black people in the entertainment industry for so long, like saying, okay, Dorothy Dandridge, you can be in this movie, but you have to talk like you're uneducated because that's the only acceptable way black people can speak in movies because we don't want to remove the stereotype that black people are uneducated. We need to keep that in place. You know, and it's yeah. like, well, more people will buy it. Like, people loved it when you talked like that in Carmen, but Dorothy Dandridge didn't speak that way. You know what I mean? And you look at somebody like Harry Belafonte, Harry Belafonte, one of the most eloquent and beautiful men ever. Didn't speak that way, but he was made to. Yeah. You know, and when we played our music, think of the banjo, appropriated instrument. Banjo comes over from Africa. People are playing the banjo. Irish people are playing the fiddle, right? Black people are playing the banjo. People from Latin, Latino people playing the guitar. And, we, and we're playing jugs and drums and, you know, stuff like that. And then somebody, they were playing boring English waltzes. You know what I mean? And then they come out to where the poor people are and they're like, what is this wonderful sound? Y'all are throwing they, down. Yeah, y'all are throwing down. Okay, Irish people and, and, and Polish people and Ukrainian people, now you guys throw down, but we're not gonna let the black people do it. You just learned from them what they were doing and then you can come into this space and everyone will love it. But not if black people do it with you. Country music, hillbilly music at the beginning. You got people in Appalachia, Native Americans, Polish people, Irish people, black people. Everybody's just up there sharing stories. Very segregated communities, right? But interdependent, right? So then you have, you know, you have the Carter family who had a black person finding music for them to sing. And no, no talk of that. Because we were not allowed to be included in things that we contributed to. And we're traumatized by that. You know, we're traumatized by, you know, reggae music being what it was and then us not being able to be included in the spaces where it would be financially viable. Like, we're traumatized. We were traumatized with rap. It was really just a response. Like, no, you're not going to push us out of this one. And then Eminem comes out and sells 20 million records. Eminem's an incredible rapper. Because Eminem is white in America, certain things happen. But because Eminem is white in America, certain things didn't happen. Eminem wanted some type of validation from the people that were excluding him from the Cypress because he was white. Yeah. Eminem always talked about being white. And I want to be dope in spite of my whiteness. You know what I mean? And then Eminem went so far that Eminem's on a lot of hip-hop artists' top five. Yeah. And he's a white boy. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing. I remember there's this interview with the game where they said, "What's you know, what's one MC you that you wouldn't want to get get into a battle with?" And and the guy didn't even get it out of his mouth. He said, "M." He said, "I don't. It's not up for debate for me. Greatest lyricist of all time. He'll murder anybody." Yeah, you know? we we really need to examine in the musical community race and culture. Like we really need to have these conversations in a public forum. And it's very hard for people to get offended in these conversations. And it's very hard for people to exclude people from these conversations. But I think that, like right now, Samir and I are working on a folk project, right? Oh, dope. And so basically, because we love stories. So we're working on a folk project right now. And the way that it looks is turning out to be such a beautiful thing. But it also leads to a larger conversation where in Americana music, there's a, a lot more Black artists that are starting to get representation um, and inclusion in that conversation and in that space that have been there for a long time. And I think what I would like to see is um, artists who have platforms and who have resources and who have spaces 
when you have a set that's an hour and you have a homie that you think people might not be aware of or they might culturally not have access to, you give them 10 minutes. Like we gotta start doing these radical things to expose people to larger audiences that they're being excluded from having access to for some reason or another. You know, I, I think Chronix is probably one of the most incredible reggae artists of the, my life. And Chronix has done things in reggae to me that his music and his message is incredible. Um, and when we were at Red Rocks with Chronix and he was kind of watching the show, all of it, he was taking all of it in. You know, because he was one of the only, you know, you had guys from Hawaii, you had white bands, you had, and Chronix's roots, reggae, you know? And he was just kind of observing the environment because he goes in environments like that where he plays at like Cali Roots and stuff like that. Sure. Then he goes and plays shows in Africa and Jamaica, you know, where Americans, man, we, we're messed up. We, um... Our identity is so complex, and the conversations we have around identity are very complex. And well, you know, George Carlin once said something that I think hits the nail on the head, and anyone that's lived in a big city like yourself or myself can attest to this. He always said, we have this theory of the American melting pot, and we all did get put into the pot, but the pot never got turned on, and there was an intentional thing to keep every ingredient. Every ingredient is in the pot, because we have to be. We have nowhere to go. We're all here. But the heat hasn't been turned on. So we haven't really molded and we, we have on the fringes, like you're saying with music. Only through food. Only through only food, food. Food, a little bit with music, clothing. You know, that's <laughs> that's one of the wildest things too is, is is out here that, I mean, what are young white kids listening to? 99.9% Yeah, we get into the deeper conversation of why is the radio only advocating for very specific messages from hip hop artists? Yep. Yeah, like, and that's what I was the saying. Is it people choosing it, or are they yep. being conditioned to choose it? I honestly, man, I have a whole deep uh, theory on that that is very aligned with KRS. We got. I can just tell like, we have more conversation. <laughs> yeah. We need to spend some time in person. That's yeah. I agree. I agree. I'm trying. Uh, Samir and I are trying to figure out ways. We're we're very black people, yeah. culturally. Um, my grand my grandpa is you know Dominican. My grandma is Puerto Rican. Black you know Afro Latino. Jamaicans, you know, my story is a very intricate and complex story, but I identify culturally in, as a black American. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanna know, I wanna know how I can stand in my blackness and advocate for blackness culturally and, and build bridges and, and, and create conversations culturally with different people who, because would it be acceptable for a white American band to sing in Chinese? Yeah, if that was the cultural conversation, would it be appropriate for a black band to to uh, sing in a Ukrainian folk songs? Like, is that is that okay? Is it not okay? Are we appreciating culture? Are we appropriating culture? Like, it's hard to know. We're all right on top of it. It's hard to know. And something we're like, that's appropriation. That sucks. But when it becomes a black and white American conversation, all of a sudden there's all these shades. You know what I mean? I don't. I don't. I don't, one thing I don't like that happens sometimes to us at shows is I'll be talking about something in my experience, in my hip hop experience, and then like a white kid will say to me, oh, you don't know anything about hip hop, right? Because this person, that person, that person, I'm like, okay, I'm not upset because you said I don't know anything about hip hop because I'm black and you're white, 
I'm upset because you have no idea that I didn't choose hip hop as a musical genre. I was raised up in it as my culture from the time I was born. Right? My grandfather was a DJ. My mom used to help uncles. I used to help Russell Simmons pass out flyers. My aunt dated Curtis Blow. My uncle designed the first T-shirt for BDP, for Boogie Down Productions, when they were first coming out. Like, you have no idea how well I know hip-hop. You choosing it as a musical genre and feeling like you're very attached to it does not disqualify me from having an opinion because my pedigree is deep and long. And that, that conversation is a conversation I have to have a lot. And most people are like, you don't know nothing about hip-hop, white boy telling the black person. It's not even about black and white. It's bruh, don't make me pull the receipts out on you, mm -hmm. right? To me, this is not a musical genre that I've chosen because it's fun and it's story time. This is literally my culture. And yep. anybody whose culture, when somebody imitates their culture is gonna feel a way about it. If I try, try to cook jollof rice for somebody that's Nigerian, they probably wouldn't even eat it. My grandmother will not eat curry outside of her own house. It's like, I can't eat curry from somebody that's not from my town. From her town. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's it's we really need to have these conversations. And I would love to be on an academic panel where I get a chance to be right and I get a chance to be wrong. Yeah, you you uh you're one of the greatest speakers that I've ever had the privilege of talking to. and I truly, truly Oh, thank that. you so much. Yeah, I really mean that means that. a lot to me. Um I, I have a couple more things and then I and then I'll ask you some standard questions and then I'll let you go. Okay. Um, I don't know if we were supposed to go that long before the oh, actual man. interview. Shit. No, I knew I told I told my manager I was like, I feel like this one's gonna go and I'm gonna let it go. Uh, <laughs> so do you think it I was listening to Cornell West today and he was saying, Hey, uh, I like the parallels because the way that you address people is really similar. You address people in a way that makes them very comfortable. You know, at Cornell West always, oh, my dear brother, oh, my dear sister, even if he's talking to Donald Trump, oh, my dear brother, let me, let me break this down for you. Um, and you have similar qualities in that way. You make whoever you're talking to not feel belittled or uh, ostracized because they might not know as much as you. You do a really good job of, of being inclusive with the way that you talk, and I really appreciate that. Um, but he said that America is at it's great reckoning right now mm -hmm. and that we're going to go the right way or the wrong way again in the 60s we hit a, we hit a strong point of reckoning and again we did some very like i was saying before some surface level changes um you know we assassinated every black leader uh but we integrated schools you know do you think that where I'm with you on that. You know what I mean? So it was it was all of this stuff that looked good because on the front of the newspaper, we could say segregation ended, racism is no more, everyone got what they wanted. And when we know that isn't true. Um, and I just want to know if you think that we are, are we going to go the right way? Do you think that the 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 social climate of, of humanity right now is at a place where we can finally pull the fucking jacket off of the knife and pull the knife out and go, okay, this is a real wound and, and actually address it. I mean, I, I feel like these constructs of race that we've all had to live, live by, um, you know, a lot of artists that I think about and that I like talk about how there's a condition where black people have always felt like they live under like a white male gaze. 
And um, I think what's important right now is when Joe Biden says stuff like, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. That's very problematic. When Joe Biden, people look into his history and he says stuff like, I don't want to send my kids to an interracial jungle, right? Yeah. Like when you start really looking at this on a systemic level, like these problems are powerful. And by that, I mean, the people that are a problem are in great positions of power, right? And so when we have these conversations with intellectuals and we have, it's not, we need to, you know, do this and do that. Nobody has, nobody has an answer to me that can be implemented immediately. Everything takes time and time wears down patience and the system is set up to be that way. And it wears down your energy and your devotion and your commitment and you age and things come up and now you have responsibilities and now you have this. They, they drag it out in hopes that we'll forget that we cared about it in the first place. You know what I mean? And they appease us with things. Like you said, you know what? Let's give everybody some more money. You know what? Let's give you another tax break. You know what? Let's make your life easy. Let's make things so easy that you don't want to fight against things that are wrong because it compromises your ease. You know, and, you know, Minister Farrakhan is somebody that, you know, people have controversial opinions about him. But when he speaks, it's from a place of, I have ideas about things. Whether or not people agree with those ideas, they're well thought out ideas that he is committed to. I've also right? never and, heard him lie. I've never heard him say anything that wasn't is, true. Is, the thing about it is, is, oh, his views are ethnocentric. His views are, you know... Uh, centered in religious, you know, whatever. I just think that I wonder when there's going to be a plan. You know, like when the Black Panthers are like, we're going to have the People's Party. We have our own political party now. And when populists were like, we have our own party now. I wonder if that will happen. People will be like, you know what? We shouldn't have to vote for you. And we shouldn't have to vote for you just because you've said those are the only options for us. I just, I really am at a point after being active for so long where i'm really at a in a like on an observation tower i'm like what is gonna happen what is going to go on i don't i'm not around i don't get enough time to be around my mentors and my elders in movements and academia and struggles and the homeless man that i made friends with that sits outside that tells me his opinions about everything i haven't gotten to have conversations outside of myself in different contexts where, where I can consider multiple points. And um, I really am at a loss for words and I have no future predictions at all. I'm so present in this moment that it almost seems like it could go anywhere. And I wonder if my mom felt the same way when this was happening when she was young. The immediacy of it doesn't allow me to see, see anything past it. Yeah, what's interesting with you saying that is I, I went out to eat with my father-in-law, uh, who is a mentor of mine, and, and we don't agree on a, on a fair amount of stuff politically, but we always manage to meet each other in the middle because there's this love and respect in the way that we approach each other is, is with that at the forefront. And, you know, I asked him, again, as someone that really loves history, I was like, okay, so in the late 60s, we were having these same kinds of protests. Um, we were also had the Vietnam War. So all of these sources of conflict. And I asked him, I said, I keep telling people like, I think the 60s was crazier, man. And, and I asked him and he said, it is not comparable. He said, we were questioning every day if society was going to collapse because we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. We had Vietnam. We had the racial tension going on. We had segregation that hadn't gone through. And then in every major city, there was either uh, an, uh, 
a civil rights protest or a Vietnam protest, and then they started merging, and then Kent State happened. He was like, no, it was, it's not even comparable. This, what we're seeing is, um, he, did, he didn't say lighthearted. I forget how he said it, but he said, what we're seeing is young people going, all right, we're fucking done. Yeah, where he was like, you know, in the 60s, it was like, you know, and the, the we, you know, weather underground was like sending bombs to places. So he's like, it seemed like shit was really about to go yeah, off. Everything. There was no cultural structure that was intact at that time. No, Zero. And, and there we were have, religious conflicts. There was like every, like every tenet of life was in question back then. And for me, the immediacy and the urgency of this, like he's saying, for him, it's very different, right? But for us, the immediacy is the same urgency that they felt at that time, right? Yeah. Because to us, our social structures are collapsing. Our, our uh, economic structures are in question, but that, it's like almost like a, revo a, a revolutionary ideology coming about in a time where politicians are like, that, that response is not what should come from this impetus. Like, how is this huge revolution coming from the death of somebody at the hands of police. Like we used to be able to quell these things. They used to be very black and poor things. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so it's, there's, there's things that I don't, I'm, it's such a weird time. It's such, I mean, I've been looking, you know, I'm a history person. So I always am doing comparative analysis. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, here's what lines up. Here's what doesn't line up. Here's what I just, oh, man, I'm like, and I think because of the quarantine and the coronavirus, there's been days where I'm just like sitting and I'm just breathing and like wondering what the hell is going on and what it means. And I don't know what it means, but I know it has to have significance that we've been rapping about racism since rap was around and we've been singing about racism since singing was around and we've been praying about racism since praying was around and fighting against racism since fighting was around like and now all of a sudden I mean I gave this analogy in another podcast and this is what it feels like to me and it might feel like this to you comparative with other issues it feels like you go to a school and in that school nobody really messes with you you have your small group of friends you guys are friends and there's a group of kids that always bully you and when you go to the administrator you're like these kids are always bullying me and the administrators are like we don't care we're not going to do anything about it and that's your life and then one day you come to school and you walk in the door and they're having a pep rally in your honor. What emotional, what the hell's going on? That's what it feels. Everybody loves us. Everybody's against racism. Everybody loves, like, everyone loves us. You know what I mean? Yay, but weird, but eh. <laughs> I've been getting but, my ass you know, kicked for a while. Where were you guys? Can you imagine you walk into school one day? Yeah. And everybody's celebrating you? The same people who have ignored you? And the same administrators who ignored you? And the same kids who beat you up? And the same... Everybody, all of a sudden, you have an anticipation of one thing? And you walk into the world? And everybody's sending you money on Venmo? because they feel guilty about the things they didn't know or the things that they knew and they allowed to happen and did nothing about. What I don't want is I'm not here for like white guilt. 
What I want is white outrage that they were not educated about the reality of the world and that they were convinced that all of this was a lie. And that's what we're seeing, right? And I want white, white, uh, uh, I don't even know how to say the words. I'm, I'm not for white people just being like, I'm so sorry if there's anything I could do. I don't want that. That's not what I want. I want you to go home on Thanksgiving and tell your grandfather, I'm not down with this. And I, I feel like I was not educated well. And, and do it in a way where you feel like if you want to preserve that relationship, you do. But I don't want you to misrepresent the truth to make other people comfortable because that's not going to change anything. Right. Once you know something, you can't forget you know it. Clarissa Pinkola Estes has a story in the book Women Who Run With The Wolves where she talks, it's a story of Bluebeard. She talks about this girl whose husband tells her not to use a key to open the door. And her sisters convince her to actually do it. And when she does it, it starts bleeding and the blood gets all over everything because it represents the truth. It's symbolic of the truth. Once you know a truth, it should bleed onto everything. You can't unknow it. So now that you know it, what are you going to do about it? Mm. What are you going to do? Feeling bad is not an action. What are you going to do? What are all of us going to do? And that's the only thing that can dictate where this is going to go. When people stop thinking about how they feel and start thinking about how they're going to move and how, not how their heart feels, but what their hands are going to do, right? Not what their brain thinks, but what their mouth is going to say, right? And when you start lining those things up and you have feelings that are, that are, you know, the alchemy turns them into actions, right? When something is tangible, when you learn a truth and that truth outrages you to the point that you vocalize it, even if that makes you a victim, you know, that's what I, that's what I want to see. I don't want people to feel bad for blackness because we had a lot of tremendous trauma and struggle, but we had a lot of joy. We do a lot of amazing things and we've contributed a lot to this country. I don't want people's sympathy. I want their camaraderie and their solidarity. That's what I want. Don't feel bad for us, right? But feel, feel for us, feel something, feel with us. You know what I mean? Feel with us, not for us. You know what I mean? With us. We're, we're generations of, of, of people that have such capability for change and we believe in each other. You know, and I, my kids go to school and they, they advocate for people. And they, I taught my kids that whiteness is not an aesthetic. It's a frame of mind and a culture that people voluntarily want to belong to that involves systemic oppression of people, right? It's not a color of a skin because you have people who subscribe to this too, right? And you have white people that do not that are, whose skin is white, who are like, I ain't down for all this racism. I ain't down for all this, somebody like you. So if I teach my kids about whiteness as a construct, how can I put you in that category, Drew? And be telling the truth. Yeah. There's new yeah, truths. Man. There's new truths. Whiteness is a mentality, right? That involves racism. And, and the reason I say whiteness is because it was perpetuated as a class of people that who got to belong to it was chosen. It's an elite club right? Where certain people can be in and certain people cannot. And certain groups were initiated in when they did what the F they were told to do. Right? And people say, when the girl was on, on YouTube saying, how can you be say we're burning down our own neighborhoods? We don't know anything. I mean, we don't own anything, she said. Pardon me, not know anything, know anything, own any, own anything. And, and, and what people, if you, history buffs like us, redlining, right? 
the, the telling people, Italians, Jewish immigrants, uh, Polish immigrants, German immigrants, if you align with us politically, we will give you loans to start businesses. But uh, 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 there's a catch. You can't start these businesses in white neighborhoods. You have to go into poor neighborhoods or black neighborhoods and you can start a business there. And we deny small business loans to black people so they can't open up businesses in their own neighborhoods. And people wonder, how come there's always so many Asian stores and, and people you know, from Arab countries have stores and these, do you know the, the United States government literally said, you can have loans to go into these communities, but if you are a person of, that is black and lives in this community, you cannot have a loan. How are we supposed to open anything? How are we supposed to own anything? How about redlining when you guys gave us, there's this guy named Tanner Colby. You know, have you read this book by Tanner Colby? Uh -uh. He wrote this book called, I wanted to know what the white perspective on racism was. So I went out and picked up a bunch of books. Some of them were written by Klansmen. Some of them were written, because that's who I am. I'm researching this whole thing. How can I understand if I don't look at everybody? And this guy, Tanner Colby, wrote this book called Some of My Best Friends Are Black. And he wanted to know how he grew up in a city that had integrated schools, but he didn't have a, black, a single black friend. And he went through the historical context of segregation and systemic racism. Entire thing. Even to the Great Society with Lyndon B. Johnson. The whole thing. And it, that book should be required reading for people because it's all based in historical fact. And then he has personal narrative that's added in. But in that book, you know, that book was very well written. And I think more people should read that book when you see the things that were put in place to make sure you didn't feel like you had anything in common with your differentially racial neighbor. Yeah, I think, you know, there's two this... <laughs> So, for, you know, my family, my brother and sister live on the west side of Chicago, right in the middle of the Austin neighborhood, which is, you know, it's a fucking war zone most of the time. But they couldn't afford to get a house in anywhere else in Chicago. But there's always this, this tale that we're told of the neighborhood over there, right? Of this is what it's like. It's scary. You've heard of all the shootings there. They don't say like, well, these are gang-related shootings. They're not shooting random people. Man, I almost hit a dude on a dirt bike in that neighborhood and he whipped around and came up to the side of the van and all my boys in the van were like oh shit and he goes y'all man that was my bad i didn't even see y'all i'm sorry <laughs> you know <laughs> and, and, That's and, the thing, man. and it's like, but it's just the thing of nobody talks to each other and i think if nothing else what this whole movement is right now is an opportunity for us to have big long conversations with each other like you and i are doing right now yeah, how do you talk about people if you don't talk to them? You don't know anything about them. And like we're saying, you know, I always, the thing is Samir and I touch on uh, every time we connect is this like gun to your head. What are the first three important things in your life? Almost everyone will say my family, safety, security, God, you know what yeah. I mean? And so it's yeah. like, okay, well, if that's where we're at, then what the fuck are we fighting about? And what exactly. are we? And if somebody says that family, safety, God. Where the conflict comes in is what means family to you. And that's where somebody would say, no gay marriages. Those are not real families. Right. This is not real family. Everybody's more concerned with what other people are doing, right? And how that affects them than concentrating that energy on making sure you're taking care of what you need. I try to have conversations. My mom, like my mom was a great mom. My dad was a great dad. Because anything we didn't understand 
we had to go out and find an understanding. Anything. You don't understand why old men wear POW MIA hats? Why don't you ask them? And everybody forgets that a critical skill right now is the craft of question, right? And the ability to listen. If you want to understand something, it's worthwhile to sit and think of a question that would increase the breadth of your understanding of that thing. You don't just rattle off things that would implicate you. I don't come up to you and say, why the hell are you wearing that fucking thing? Right. That's not the right question. Why do you wear that hat? What does that even mean? Right? The, the way you ask a question is more important than the question. Yeah. You know, so I think the fact that people are making it very dangerous to ask questions right now is stifling. I think when you can't ask questions, it leaves you victim to being controlled by narratives that don't belong to you. And I want to have as many conversations as I can as possible because I'm not like my friends. I have, then they let me know. There was a time when I felt very bad. I was like, I feel like I should be out doing more. I feel like I should be doing something. And my friend, Kalanji Jamachanga, told me, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, right? You are a person that can navigate so many different spaces and you have a quality of character that allows you to converse with people in ways that they feel understood and 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 all i ever want my goal in life i used to think it was music i used to think it was writing i used to think it was speaking or team games or sports or whatever but my passion in life is connection i do everything that i do so i can feel connected to other people I make music to stand on the stage and feel connected. I write stories so somebody could say, that's my story too. I stand up and talk in front of crowds of people so people can feel connected to the words that I'm saying. My passion in life is connection and I wanna make myself a bridge and I'll be wrong a lot of the time and I'll learn a lot of lessons along the way, but I'm not afraid of that process. You know what I'm saying? I'm not afraid to have to be called to task for the things that I'm doing or saying because I'm, I know some things, but what I don't know, I'll spend my life learning that I don't know. You know what I mean? Amen. And I, um, I think I want to, because I have that passion for connection, I spent my entire life trying to be a good communicator and trying to learn stories other than my own. And when somebody does something I cannot rationalize, I try to learn about their rationale, right? So there was a conversation where they were like, why in the hell? would black people ever be Republican or conservative? And in Colorado, there's a lot of black conservatives. And I said, I wonder that too. So I went and picked up a book and read about it, written by black conservatives. And I didn't agree with most of the things they said, but some stuff I did agree with. When they said black people shouldn't have to have a monolithic identity because it characterizes us from the viewpoint of slaves. Like we don't all have free thought and free actions and free, like I agreed with that. I don't think that, the testament to not having, you know, being a part of the monolith is voting for Donald Trump. I don't agree with that part. You know what I mean? But I do agree that it's time for us all to start asking questions of the systems that are in place that have, if, if these political systems were so wonderful, why are we still having to have these conversations? Yeah, if it's if it was working, this many people would yeah, be franchise. Why is this happening right now? If any of that was working. Any of that, my grandfather, right? There's a lot of older black people, if you talk to them, Drew, probably a lot of older white people too, and I've talked to some of them, but not enough to qualify an opinion. My grandfather told me one thing that was very difficult for him between the generations was when he was, he was younger, what it meant to be a man is that despite 
what it was you wanted to do in your life. Primarily, you took family, care of your family on your your own accord. It's not about your to provide everything for your children. You care of yourself, right? My computer is. Right. This concept of welfare man and all that stuff. He didn't see that out of that. I know. My family's all down. You're like, mom, come on. Come on, stand. But he, he, to him being a man meant you take care of your family at all odds. And for him, for somebody to not do that was like, you're not taking care of your family. So this guy wrote a book where he was talking about how um, when they said like, oh, all black men are drug addicts, oh, all this, all that, after putting drugs and guns into our neighborhood and, and, and making a holiday, my grandfather used to always say, you know, the United States government assassinated Martin Luther King and then they gave him a holiday. He's like, if you want to understand this country, that's all I have to say. They killed him and then gave everybody a day off work in his name to honor him. You know what I mean? And those complexities, those realities are so serious, right? That when you look at the fact that people conspired to maintain racism and anytime people gathered in spite of that, they obliterated them. And the inhumane things, like when you're talking about Black Wall Street, right? That was American people who did that. And, and it wasn't that long people, ago. You look at those pictures of women spitting on kindergartners when they integrated school. Those women are still alive. They're still alive. You see what I'm saying? The people that helped to facilitate putting drugs into poor communities, they're still alive. And they're still in positions of power. They're still around. Where did all that vitriol go? It's still around. You know, where is it? I ask people, ask your grandparents what they did when schools got integrated. If you're from Little Rock, are, any, are you related to any of the people in these pictures? Who are those people? Y'all come from these people that would spit on a child. How can a mother in her right mind, spit on somebody's child. You're compromising your humanity for structures that were created not to serve you, not to serve God, not to serve people, to serve money. You would spit on a child? I can't think of a child I would spit on. Can you? No, ma'am. I can't think of a single child I, I would spit on. I can't think of a single child that I would tie to a blade and drop into the bottom of a river because they whistled at my wife. Who does that? And when you have to look in the mirror and say, people validated that action because they look like you and I look like me. That was all the validation they needed. That shit hurts. And you know that. How did they validate what they did? because they looked like you and he looked like me. That was the only validation they needed. Do you think that's enough as the mother of a child, as the father of a child, somebody to brutalize your child in that way? You think like, let's, let's talk about the humanity that was lacking. How can we not be like that? 
How can we increase our humanity and our inclination towards one another? Some of the things that I see done, some of the things I've heard done, the history that I've been raised with, I could never do those things. And I don't, I think kids that are being brought up right now, white kids cannot rationalize that behavior. Not at all. I don't think they can. I really don't. And people are like, oh, they're rated. I do not think any human being right now can rash. That's why I say racism is a psychosis and a neurosis. Because you think it makes sense to see a black child and strap them to a fan blade and throw them into a river after you've beaten them mercilessly. And you justify your action by saying, well, he's black and we're white. And black people shouldn't whistle at white people. That doesn't sound crazy to you. It's crazy. Yeah. Like you have to literally be crazy to do something like that. And well, there's so many crazy people that people are acting like it's normal. There's so yeah, many that's, crazy people. That's the thing, though, is that there is this identity politics and tribalism that takes over people's brains. Um, you know, there's this story that I've told before. I'll let you go. I'll let you go in three minutes. <laughs> you know that. You know how that parent like this. They're and they're like. But I knew when we talked like this, I knew from the minute that I met you and I heard you speak that you are a real one. And I'm, I, Samir and I, I both talked about you a lot. And um, you're a good dude, man. And I you, really appreciate you're you. You're a great brother. You're a good brother. And I'm, I'm, I'm honored and appreciative to be able to be in this life with you and to be able to have these conversations with you and to be able to walk this path with you and I'm so glad it converged when it did. And um, it means a lot to me that you care about how we feel. And it means a lot to me that you care about ways that we can build bridges towards one another and care about one another and incline one another to goodness. And that means a lot to us. So thanks for being our, our brother in, mm. in humanity and in goodness. Yeah, I'm honored. Likewise, I have uh, I have nothing but love for you guys. I think that is the perfect way to sum that up. I think that's the perfect way to end the <laughs> podcast right there. Go be with your family and I'm going to be with mine. So much love to you. Yeah, and please, I've been saying this whenever I talk, y'all. Everybody's trying to be a part of big things right now, but it's very important to do small things that matter. And every day, if you could do something small for yourself, even if that means just like taking a long shower or singing a song you like or taking a walk, something small for yourself, do something small for your, 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 your community and then do something small for humanity. You know, it doesn't matter what it is, like first yourself and then maybe your friends or your family and then your community, whatever aspect it grows for you in, but do something small every day to contribute to goodness in life. Even if it's just a kind word to somebody or picking up a piece of trash off the ground or making sure an elderly neighbor is cool when they're getting into in or out of their car. Um, do the small things too, because those things matter a lot. The little ways that we make each other visible really matter amen well i can't wait to uh to talk to y'all again and i hope he's that, gonna hope right I, that's what i was just gonna say man. i'm coming down uh, i'm coming down later this uh later this summer so i hope everything's look what i'm dealing with over here <laughs> hey y'all <laughs> you got the whole crew in here the whole it. crew been staring at me from the corner for 30 minutes Hey, let me talk. Let me see a little MC real quick. Yeah. Hold, oh, hold yeah. We got a DJ in here. We got a visual artist. We got our day-to-day -day manager, Dom, is here. We I got love it. the little MC, Malcolm, right here. Malcolm. That I verse. mean, it's, oh, he said I'm not oh, called man. Malcolm. Oh, 
Squat Lord King Mal. Excuse me. He, he, he said, I'm not called Malcolm. Your verse is phenomenal. Please keep writing, man. That was that was phenomenal, phenomenal work. work. Yeah, keep oh, writing. He's working homie. on his album right now. He's been kidnapping my computer and recording stuff on Ableton. Yeah, he's got it. He's got it. Well, I love well, you love, man. I hope this yeah. turns out to be everything you wanted it to be. And uh, I'm More. sure I'm going to get called to task for some of the things I said, but I'm up to the challenge and I'm up to the learning opportunity if I was wrong about anything. So I don't think you were. I was honored to have you. We'll talk soon. We're going to have the ethnomusicology, white culture, and black music conversation again, because that I think that's a long-standing conversation. So let's Yeah, do hopefully in person. All right, salute to you, brother. Big love Me to too. your family. Take care of yourself. I told you guys. I fucking told you. I loved that. And I love you guys. And I think in the midst of the fucking madness, the chaos, this weird ravenous internet culture where people are eating each other, climbing imaginary hierarchies, uh, living out weird automated fake Joseph Campbell narratives uh, when really they're just being fucking crazy. I don't know, man. I don't know what I'm saying. I got hope. I got hope. People like Samir in Asia Black give me hope. They give me hope that we're going to be all right if we talk to each other. Next week on the podcast, we have one of my favorite musicians of all time, Mr. G Love. Um, insane full circle for me to get a sit down with G Love and I cannot wait to share that podcast with you so make sure as always you like share, save, subscribe any of the other things you can do to support this podcast and get people's ears on it we're going to keep having important conversations and uh, I love y'all, take care of each other and be civil be civil with one another God bless y'all, peace